Welcome to the Penguin Podcast. In this episode, Richard E. Grant talks to the novelist Irvin Welsh about his new novel, The Blade Artist. We think this podcast is often quite funny and revealing. We know this podcast is sometimes quite explicit. This is a friendly warning. Hello and welcome to the Penguin Podcast. I'm Richard E. Grant and in today's episode I'm joined down the line from Chicago by an author whose first novel, Train Spotting, became a global cult classic and he's taking us back to Edinburgh's murky underworld in his latest novel, The Blade Artist. He's, of course, Irving Welsh. Irving, welcome. Richard, always a pleasure, mate, and always a pleasure to be called a cult by you. <laughs> Thanks for joining us. I'm sure that it's uh, four o'clock in the morning there. Train Spotting became known as an era-defining book, and you know you've sold over a million copies in the UK alone. Now, the Blade Artist marks the return of one of its most terrifying characters, the incendiary Francis Begbie, though not as we know him. Why did you decide to resurrect or revisit Begbie and give him his own novel? It kind of coalesced from kind of discussions I was having with John Hodge and Danny Boyle when we were talking about the possibility of doing a train spotting follow up, kind of based on porno, a kind of train spotting too, mm-hmm. which is kind of underway now. It got me thinking about that character again. And the other thing was, we did a play called Train Spotting USA, which was about basically setting the, the characters taking them from Edinburgh and putting them into Kansas City and giving them, you know, making, them, making them American characters. They all translated. They all translated very well, except for Begbie. We had major problems with him because, uh, well, American violence is all about the gun. You know, it's not yeah. about kind of up close and personal kind of stuff, like uh, <laughs> the, the, the honourable psychopaths back home. You know, so, uh, Glassy. So we thought that, yeah, so we, we kind of, you know, we, we had problems with that character. I mean, the... Um, the unscrupulous, manipulative fanny rat, the kind of the cynical intellectual and the um, the lovable loser, kind of, you know, the, the other three guys all translated yeah. right across cultures. But Begbie was very, very kind of culturally, particularly Scottish, but, you know, generically from these islands as mm-hmm. that kind of archetypal kind of hard man. From that, I was asked to do a story for the big issue, a Christmas story. And always associate Christmas with nutters, always associate with bad behaviour and kind of sort of uh, kind of squabbling and sort of um, domestic kind of disputes and stuff like that. So uh, I thought Begbie at Christmas, have to have him back for another Christmas tale. And then I realised that when I got to writing him, there was no real life left in the character. I mean, this guy is either in jail or he's dead. Basically, that's the trajectory he's on. So uh, I just thought kind of mischievously, you know, wouldn't it be interesting if he was actually the most reasonable person in the room? So that was what that story became the basis of. And the novel, in some ways, kind of grew out the story. But, you know, and I thought, well, what if he was maybe just pretending to be the most reasonable person in the room? So it kind of went on from there, really. So you've got him settled in California with his wife, Melanie, and their two doted-upon daughters. And Begbie finds himself torn between his past and his new identity when bad news from home calls him back to his native Scotland and the funeral of a murdered son he barely knew. Let's meet Begbie, or as he's now called, Jim Francis, in an extract from the audiobook of The Blade Artist, read by Tam Dean Byrne. Jim is silent as still and immobile as one of his pieces of sculpture. Melanie can feel his tension seeping into her, hardening her. Breaking off her grip, she lets her arms fall by her sides. You won't get involved in anything over there, will you? Jim shakes his head dismissively, 
What's to get involved in? I just want to find out what happened. Go to his funeral, he says, then adds in a different voice, See whose tears are real, whose are crocodile. And he moves through to the small office, sits down in front of the computer and goes online. Jim, you say you never knew him. Neither did I, Jim mutters, his dark brown eyes clouding. When he was younger, he was just a distraction to me, an irrelevance. Then I was in the jail. I did everything wrong with him and his brother, he says, seeming to Melanie to grow almost conversational in his tone, like he is talking to someone else. It disconcerts her, and he picks up on it, sinking his voice. When I had kids, I said I'd never be the way my old man was with me, and I kept my word. I was worse, he allows, almost bluntly, as he pulls up the American Airlines page on the screen. Then he turns to her and says intently, But I'm different with the girls. Of course you are. You're a great dad, Melanie says, probably a little too urgently. It's different now. You were too young. You. I was addicted to violence, Jim coldly confesses, tapping in information and pulling out his credit card. But I've got that nonsense under control now, because it doesn't take me anywhere interesting. Just jail. Done too much of that. Yes, Melanie looks at him, squeezes his hand. She tries to find him, this man she married, whom she'd taken with her back to the States. All she can see is a Scottish jailbird she'd met years ago called Francis Begbie. The first object that you brought into the studio is a copy of The Big Issue, which you associate with Christmas and psychopaths, violence and tears. I know that you're going to be sharing a number of objects with us, but your copy of The Big Issue, can you expand on that a little bit, please? It was the first uh, magazine that I'd written a, a Begbie story for. I'd written a very violent Begbie story when he kind of, um, he's introduced to his future brother-in-law at Christmas and he just kind of basically kind of runs amok and terrorises the whole family. And they asked me to do another one some 15 years later, you know, so th that was the kind of catalyst for kind of rebooting Begbie and giving the character some new dramatic and kind of social possibilities. So if I came to your house for Christmas, there'd be uh, Christmas puddings would be missiles, would they? Oh, no, I'd look after you, mate. I wouldn't do <laughs> would that you? to you, for God's sake. Yes, of course. <laughs> Begbie seemed to be destined for a life of violence and crime. Do you think fans of your books will be surprised to see such an initially apparent turnaround? He almost seems like a different character at the start of it. And then uh, you realise that you know that he's still he's struggling with his past, and he's not really kind of reconciled, you know, who he once was. And uh, it's almost like when he gets to Edinburgh, and he's so dismissive of the idea of of getting into violence, and he's and he's so dismissive of the idea of of Scotland. He was the one that was most patriotic, not so much about Scotland or even Edinburgh, but about Leith. He really kind of idealised Leith. And now he's the one that kind of can't wait to get out of it. He's very, very dismissive and scornful of everything in Scotland. And it's almost a bit like kind of um, me thinks the lady doth protest too much. You know, you think, you know, he's got to be keeping his powder dry for some kind of reason here. Irvin, in The Blade Artist, you fill in the details of Begbie's childhood, revealing the experiences that shaped him and turned him into the monster that he became. Did you enjoy delving deeper into Begbie's psyche? 
he has to have some kind of, you have to have some explanation for the way he is. I think you empathise more with the character if you if you see what they've been through and what's made them that the you know the way they are. In his case, it's like you know he's been socialised by a very violent guy mm-hmm. and his grandfather and his grandfather's peers, and they've taken an interest in him, where nobody else really has. He's had an absentee father, and um, his you know so his grandfather's became the kind of sort of role model, if you like. So it's kind of it makes him a more a more human character, I think, if you understand where he's actually coming from and and why he's acting out or why he's been acting out in the way that he is. How has transplanting yourself to Chicago influenced how you write or when you write, when you're still writing about Scotland? I mean, I've, for the last um, kind of thirty odd years, maybe even longer. I mean, I've, I've spent most of my adult life out of Scotland, which is kind of strange because I'm kind of regarded as this kind of quintessential Scottish writer. But I've actually spent most of my adult life out. You know, I've either been in London or I've been in uh, Amsterdam or here or Miami, San Francisco or Dublin. So. I've had spells back in in Edinburgh, but I've not lived there consistently. So it gives you a different perspective on it. I mean, I think you see, when you grow up in in a place, you always think of it as being very mundane and kind of boring. And, Mm -hmm. uh, you know, the the exotic things are kind of happening somewhere else. And you want to get away and find these exotic (laughs) things. And then when you actually go back to it and look at it, you think... This place is actually the most exotic and weird and kind of strange place I've ever been, you know. So, <laughs> yeah. so I see I see it through that kind of perspective. So I think kind of living somewhere else and traveling in general, I think, does kind of rejuvenate you as a writer. It does give you a kind of, um, it gives you different things to look at and it gives you different things to compare and contrast with. Put me in mind of the quote: "How can he England know who only knows England?" Um, that you have to go away in order to come back again. We're going to hear from the audiobook of the Blade Artist again. The young Francis Begbie worked for his granddad Jock and his gang as a delivery driver, and here he remembers some advice his granddad gave him. I'd sit with him, drinking tea from a mug, keeping warm by a coloured gas stove they always had on in the winter, listening to them chat. They sounded weird to my young ears, often talking in riddles, using words and ways of expressing themselves I couldn't decipher. It was as if it was a different language, some kind of a code. They were like relics from another era. They might have known fuck all about the jam being top of the charts, but they knew about people and their frailties. See your brother Joe. He's scared of you. Grandad Jock said to me once down the house, He kens he's weaker than you. I was floored by this revelation. Joe constantly bullied me, battering me, making my life hell. But I recognised a strange credibility in my grandad's statement. There was a panic in Joe's eyes when he beat me like he was almost anticipating a retaliation that never came. But, armed with this insight, I resolved that it would now arrive, and he wouldn't be expecting it. This old bastard jock, who could smell a man's vulnerability like a shark does blood in the water, he saw everything. He understood it all. When I was younger, I used to tell everybody the story of Joe and me, the story of the game-changer. The way I told it, though, I made it out that it was my dad that took me aside and told me to batter Joe's face in with a brick as he slept. 
that was how I wanted my father to be, to have that kind of will to power. But it wasn't my dad. It was my granddad. It was old Jock. The main thing, however, was that the face was Joe's and the brick was in my hand. He wept all night, blood leaking into his pillow. I was scared, but exhilarated, almost tripping on my own sense of might. We both knew the score from then on in. Powerful extract from the audiobook of The Blade Artist, read by Tam Dean Byrne. Um, the speech in The Blade Artist is mostly written in Leith dialect. How important is Leith and your hometown of Edinburgh as a setting in the novel? I remember, you know, growing up in Leith and in, in North Edinburgh and Kit Muir House, there was such a lot of different things kind of happening. There was so many, um, there was so many interesting characters around that you, you you just couldn't really kind of fail to be inspired. How did you go about choosing the right voice for the audiobook? With did you choose Tam Dean Byrne to read it? Yeah, I mean, Tam's an old friend of mine, and he sort of uh, grew up. Kind of basically just round the corner from me as as kids. He was in Tennant Street. I was down in Prince Regent Street, and um, it was just that thing that is very much kind of part of him and part of who he is. So he instinctively gets it. It's, he's probably the best person in the world who could read the the, uh, the audiobook. Yeah, he's done absolutely brilliantly. Now the Blade Artist shows a dark side to Edinburgh. Are you or have you ever been accused of giving your home city a bad rep? Oh, yeah, I mean, all the time. Um, How do you deal <laughs> with it? Of, um, yeah, I mean, it, it's, it's kind of they thing. They love that, to hate um, you. Yeah, I mean, what what's happened now is, though, that it's given it a kind of, a sort of hip, kind of cool cachet in a lot of ways that the city maybe didn't have before. Maybe it was regarded as a bit kind of stuffy and uh, a bit sort of... Morningside. Um, yeah, Morningside and, the kind, you know, and, a, and a bit kind of artsy and poncy with the festival and all that. So there wasn't seen to be a, <laughs> there wasn't seen to be a kind of vibrant working-class life there, which there always has been. You know, it's always been part of the, what, the, what the city's been about, really. So I think that um, it's given it that kind of a bit of a kind of ballsy reboot, really, you know. So, so I think that uh, it has been good in a way because I think you know any any city. I mean, cities are all the same, and to some extent, you know, they're they're all kind of um, houses of many rooms. You know, they've all got their kind of genteel side. They've got their kind of down at heel, kind of run down side. Uh-huh. They've got their seedier side. They've got their kind of you know their their artier side and all that. So, and I think all these things are kind of they go in to make a kind of sort of um, a healthy and vibrant city. And if you portray it in a very one dimensional way, I don't think it does it any service really. Irvin, your next object, out of all the objects that anybody has brought in for these podcasts, this is, stands alone as the most unusual to me. It is a pair of white sports socks. Please explain, Mr Welsh. The white sports socks, I think, I was thinking about the blade artist in this, and the white sports socks save Francis Begbie uh, like nothing else. I mean, it's like um, in the 80s, every psychopath had to wear white socks. It was I almost obligatory. I bet you have. Uh-huh. I bet you have. Yeah. <laughs> well, it was like Bobby Carlyle when he was getting fitted out to play Frank Begbie. He says, "I don't care what I wear as long as I have white socks." <laughs> and uh, and you know, so no nutter was allowed out of their house in the eighties unless they had a pair of white socks. And mother would say to them, "No, you're not going out dressed like that." You know, what happens if the if um, 
the blood kind of seeps through your brogues when you're kicking someone. You know, you, we, won't, we won't know if you've got black socks on. So get these white socks on now. Show the scars. Uh, in the Blade Artist, <laughs> Begbie has moved away from his Scottish roots and refashioned himself with the help of his wife, art therapist Melanie. In this next extract from the audiobook of the Blade Artist, Begbie reflects on Melanie's influence on him. But who was she? She was good and strong and I was bad and weak. That's what hit me most of all from being around her, that I was weak. The notion was ridiculous. It went against everything I'd come to believe about my persona and image, against the way I'd consciously forged myself over the years. Yet, who else but a weak man would spend half his life letting others lock him up like an animal? I was one of the weakest people on the planet. I had zero control over my darker impulses. Therefore, I was constant jail fodder. Some mouthy cunt got wide. They had to be decimated on the spot and I was back in prison. Thus, such non-entities were in total command of my destiny. That was my first major epiphany. I was weak because I wasn't in control of myself. Melanie was in control of herself. In order to be with somebody like her, to live a free life, not in a tenement or scheme on the breadline or even a suburb and crippled with a lifetime of debt, I needed a free mind. I had to get control of myself. I told her this. Well, Begbie has partly learned to control himself in The Blade Artist by discovering art, and this links to your next object. Can you describe Rembrandt's painting The Night Watch? I used to go. I used to go and see this painting in the Rijksmuseum Museum in Amsterdam. When you lived, when I lived there. there, yeah, and I used to go there kind of uh, fairly regularly. I would go kind of. Um, I found myself drawn to it. If I was just going for a walk around the city, I would end up there and I would just sit there looking at it, and it still has an impact on me that I could sit there and look at it for ages, and I could just be lost in this painting. There's something about it that says like it's about a kind of like change and mortality and sort of uh, and kind of rebirth and everything seems to be in this painting, but kind of um, hitting buttons in a very very subconscious way, you know. And I think that's what that that's something that's that's great about artists when you don't actually know for sure why you're getting an emotional reaction from it, but you are. You know, some every time I go back to Amsterdam, I have to go there and have to see that picture. It's amazing that you say that because it is the unifying thing that, you know, it comes through music and any art form, I think, that, you know, a middle-class ponce like me can absolutely plunge into train spotting and feel its power and its transformation. In The Blade Artist, Begbie, or Jim Francis, as he's now known, has found fame through art, making grotesquely mutilated and scarred busts of celebrities taking his anger out in clay rather than on people. Why did you decide to make Begbie an artist? Is it this transformative thing that you've just been describing? I've known so many people who have kind of been having kind of dead-end lives, who their life's not been going anywhere. They've been maybe violent criminals, maybe kind of drug addicts, maybe not, uh, you know, as desperate as that. But their life has been transformed by art. You know, they've basically it's something they've always really they always should have been doing but for kind of cultural reasons for social background reasons they've never actually got into it or seen it as a viable option and they've come to it late in life they've kind of discovered it and that's been their salvation but it's it's, it's only been a salvation because it's something that they should have been doing earlier mm -hmm. um, so I've known loads and loads and loads of people like that I've known loads of artists like that and I think you know the, the, 
the the other reason is that um, it, it kind of it just reboots the character. It gives the character a whole new set of narratives to to and a whole new set of relationships, and it makes the character more interesting again. And you know that that was what he needed. He, he really needed to, to come out of that kind of cul-de-sac that he was in to make him function again as a dramatic character. It had to be something else. Do you think that someone as violent and damaged as Begbie is can ever be fully rehabilitated? I mean, I, I haven't made him fully rehabilitated because it's more dramatic for yeah. my purposes as a novelist if he's not. But uh, I think, yes, I mean, I've known so many people who have basically who've kind of really been in a sort of, um, in the worst possible kind of sort of uh, position and they have rehabilitated themselves because, simply because, they, you know, they've learned a new script, they've learned a new kind of way of behaving and they've, learned, they've seen the possibilities that that offers them and the rewards that that offers them. So there's no real currency of going back to their old ways. People will tend to operate in their own interests if they can see a kind of a way through. But I think um, everybody has a chance to get there. Which begs the Begbie question, how much of Irving is in Begbie and the way that he uses art to escape his past life? Uh, hopefully not, not a great deal. I mean, um, but it's funny, you ne- you never know with characters. Um, you know, the, I think they, they all have to be a bit of you or a, or a kind of suppressed or repressed part of you in some mm-hmm. ways. I mean, I mean, I was always at the start, people always thought of me as Renton because Trainspotting, the first book, thought that that, that was kind of what I was like. But mm-hmm. I was always kind of quite careful about the way I constructed characters. Um but I think sometimes if you're writing outside of your comfort zone in terms mm-hmm. of, you know, like kind of gender and kind of uh, nationality and so, sometimes your defences come down a bit more and you maybe put more of yourself into them than you do without kind of realising you're doing it. You know, back to that kind of subconscious reaction stuff again to, uh, you know, with the, the Night Watch. But sometimes I think you, when something's way outside your comfort zone, you tend to, I think you maybe do invest more of yourself in the characters rather than kind of construct them. When Begbie returns to Scotland, he finds that his old Edinburgh community expects him to seek out his son's murderer and take bloody revenge. Here he is struggling to keep control at Sean's funeral in an extract from the audiobook of The Blade Artist, brilliantly read by Tam Dean Byrne. To think that this was once his family and these were once his bosom buddies... He contemplates Mel and Grace and Eve, trying to isolate details of their faces as they slither through his mind. Their friends Ralph and Juan, and even his in-laws and his agent Martin back in the sun of California. And they call this grey place Sunny Leith. It was bizarre. Life often seemed like a meaningless joke. You either got the custard pie in the face or you got to giggle at those who did. Right enough, Spud. Franco almost bellows, fighting back a gurgling laugh. As the drinks kick in, so the procession of old lags from all over town sidling up to him, full of conspiratorial talk in jailbird whispers, grows exponentially. The inanities and exhortations to violence, most regarding vengeance against Anton Miller, are almost overwhelming. He feels the bleakness crawling into his skull. Franco breathes in steadily, trying to tune it all out. That pressure on your brain, eroding focus, diverting the flow of thought down old ruinous neural canals. 
The Blade Artist follows Jim Francis's struggle to shrug off the old Francis Begbie, though it proves harder than he anticipates. Now, Evan, your next object represents Begbie's violent side. How did your kitchen knife drawer influence The Blade Artist? You know, I always thought they would be quite creative with knives. They wouldn't just go in and buy the first kind of flick knife, you know, the other first kind of big handling knife that you saw. He would, you know, I liked the idea of him using different knives, using kitchen knives, but also using kind of surgical tools to work. And it just seemed to me that he would be, he would, he would operate in that way, would think in that kind of way. So the, the knife drawer is a kind of inspiration because it's got to be when you're opening it all the time, every day, basically. So you have murderous thoughts every time you're in the kitchen. Not so much murderous <laughs> thoughts, but kind of abstract kind of ones about, uh, you know, if you, if you have a character like that, again, so much of it is subconscious. And I'm, I'm a great believer in sort of, you know, that, you know, writers always say, novelists always say, kind of, you know, let the subconscious do the heavy lifting, you know. So mm-hmm. if you work in terms of character principally rather than in terms of plot, if you let the character drive the storyline, you do tend to let the subconscious do the heavy lifting, you know. So all these things, uh, the connections only become a sort of a bit more apparent later on when you've sort of, uh, when you've thought through it. I think there's a generous helping of Gore in The Blade Artist. Do you have to be in a particular frame of mind to write ultraviolence? You see it in a very abstract way. I mean, I think, you know, it's like, nobody believes this. You know, when I wrote The Sex Life of the Siamese Twins and I was mm-hmm. writing these big kind of lesbian sex scenes, it took me a long time to convince people that, you know, both my hands were on the keyboard at all times. Um, and it's pretty much... It's the, it's the same. It's the same with. Uh, it's the same with violence. You know, you're not. You're, you're not getting this massive kind of visceral kind of rushing about. You do see it as a very kind of mundane kind of abstract job. You know, the whole thing's got to to read right. I find it very difficult to write about people being nice to each other, because um, if I go into a cinema, for example, <laughs> and uh, I see people, I see a violent scene happening in a, in a cinema. I'll just sit there and look at it, or I'll just sit there and laugh, you know, because I don't really believe it. I don't. I think this is this is actors up there. They're they're doing their they're doing their thing, but if I see actors kind of being, you know, being emotional or in love or kind of or upset, you know, I start to get really really emotional. I I just completely suspend disbelief when it comes to an emotional scene, you know. So I can be sitting watching kind of you know I watch White Christmas uh, every year. And I can be sitting watching the sort of general coming out with Bing Crosby and Danny Kaye looking all baleful. And I just be floods of tears, you know, even though I've seen it loads of times. So I get very kind of uh, emotional emotional scenes and love scenes. So I find them difficult to write. But I get very detached about violence and sex. See, I thought you'd be sitting at home in your white socks, stark naked, with knives in each hand and a big issue on your lap, which is how I am dressed right now. I've only got the white socks on and knives in each hand. Is there a are, no big any, issue. are there any boundaries to the violence in your novels? Yeah, I mean, the boundaries are always the ones set by the, how you conceive the character. You set a character up in a certain way, and once you've set that character up in a certain way, you, you can make them do anything provided it's kind of consistent and congruent with the way you've set the character up. Anything goes provided you've set the character up to make it operate in that way. Otherwise, it's just kind of... It, the, the reader will see it as a bomb note, basically. Yeah. So the violence is absolutely part and parcel of his character. In this final extract from the audiobook of The Blade Artist, Begbie starts to feel his old urges as he investigates his son's murder. A familiar scenario unfolds for Frank Begbie 
It's the type of dominance he has always found seductive, the way he feels himself drawing the power and certainty out of other hard men. Something in his core blazes in affirmation, but it's important not to succumb to this emotion, not to raise your voice. Psychotherapists had trained him not to eliminate this mindset, as he'd led many of them to believe, but simply to channel it. One, two, three. He breathes in steadily through his nose. Do you know who your good mates are? I. But, well, you can I'm no one. So if you do know me, we're not going to be close, Franco says, watching the man's resistance crumble. I want to know about Sean Begby. Arby looks over his shoulder into the stair. You'd best come in, then. Unless he was in a blind rage, Frank Begby usually picked on bullies. Not because he was some kind of protector or avenger. In fact, he hated the sappy cunts who never stood up to them more than he hated the oppressors themselves. He recalls one occasion, when after battering a tormentor, the excitement of the victim indicated he believed that Begbie's violence was undertaken on his behalf, or for some abstract notion of justice. So Begbie then rammed the nut on the biscuit ass in order to ensure he knew that the brutality had been purely for his own satisfaction, that he just preferred to ferociously assault tyrants because it changed them more. In his eyes, the sap was already defeated by terror, so there was no real buzz in smashing them. But seeing the bully's confidence and power evaporate and bearing witness to that change... That was unfailingly enjoyable. He is feeling this now with Arby. No one writes sappy cunt like you do. This new <laughs> controlled and measured Begbie is, seems to me, he's much more dangerous as a result. And is there a moral to the blade artist, or is the point of Begbie that conscience doesn't come into it? Yeah, I mean, I think the moral is that um, nutters are much more dangerous when they keep their powder dry. I mean, it's like if you're a sociopath, you're better kind of uh, being a banker or a politician. You can destroy loads and loads of lives. You don't need to. <laughs> you don't. You don't need to kind of. Um, you don't risk going to jail. You know, you don't need to. None be, of them went be, to jail. None of them went to jail. No, no, but you don't. You don't want to kind of. Um, but if you're a nutter and you just kind of um, glass somebody in a pub or stab them outside in the street, um, you're going to go to prison, you know, and you're only going to take out one person. So if you're a sociopath, kind of study banking or get into politics. Your final object um, <laughs> is a book of poetry, Some Underwood by Robert House. Tell me about the significance of this for you and could you describe the cover of the book? The cover of this is the kind of, uh, is basically the sun going down, isn't it? Looks like a woodcut. Um, yeah, and uh, yeah, Robert Huss is, uh, is just one of these poets that um, is just very, very inspirational. He's kind of, you know, there's so much kind of going on in his poetry. I mean, you know, and it's like when some people write, when some people write poems, you can tell, you know, the, in, in most poetry books, there's this kind of overwhelming kind of uh, sort of thematic concern. And there is in his books as well, but... There's just, you know, that every line is just kind of sort of pregnant with all these different possibilities. And, uh, you know, the, the kind of poetry that I like is quite dark, but it's moving towards this kind of surging light so that it's kind of coming from a, in some ways it's coming from a dark place and it's just kind of zooming up into the light and you get that kind of euphoric kind of rush from it. And I get a kind of big 
that big rush from Robert Hass's poems, because poets are like you know the they're the kind of the ultimate wordsmiths. They do the, they do the very reverse thing that I would do. I mean, I mm-hmm. I chuck away sentences like confetti, you know, but whereas they hoard words, they hoard the they hoard the word, they hoard the sentence. They'll spend so much time on it. They'll hone it. They'll kind of they'll try and make every every word, every syllable has to be designed to to trigger an emotion because they've not got a lot of time, they've not got a lot of space, and it's just uh, it's probably the kind of most uncompromising art form, basically, because there's absolutely no money in it, and um, there's uh, you know so they're doing this purely for a love of a love of language and a love of the the possibilities that. Um, you know that th- that interface between language and emotion can kind of can throw up can offer. Did you ever imagine that your books would develop the global following that you now have? Did you secretly yes, always imagine that? Yes, of course that? I did. Of course. Good. Yeah. No, I mean, I, I kind of, um, I think you. I mean, I thought that they would have some kind of an impact because. Um, you know, I believe, you know, yeah, I think you have to have, it's a, it's a strange thing being a writer, you know, you've got to have two quite contradictory things going on. You've got to have an incredible ego and incredible self-belief, mm-hmm. but you've also got to be able to get past yourself and to realise that it's not about you. These things don't always mesh together. But I think I got to that point where I'd, I felt that, I, you know, I got there by the time I wrote the first novel because anything I'd written before was kind of, it was either too detached or it was too personal and too kind of self-justifying and self-aggrandizing kind of nonsense and all that. <laughs> so um, so I got to that point where I felt that, you know, that I could write something that had impact and that had a kind of dynamism and I could create characters that, that kind of uh, would resonate. I could write about themes that were kind of resonating in the world that we lived in. So I did have that confidence about it. I don't. I don't think it would leave Scotland, or at least leave, not leave Britain. I don't think it would kind of, sort of, kind of go global, go right around the world, um, and that's been a big surprise to me. And so, as an international, multi-millionaire, globe-trotting, spectacular success that you are, how <laughs> how involved are you in Danny Boyle's sequel of Train Spotting that's being filmed as we speak? Well, you know, when they invite you to to work on the the project and the mm-hmm. kind of, we've, we've spent time and we've gone through scripts and all that with Danny and John and all that stuff. They've cast me in it to uh, to, re, to re kind of bring back Mikey Forrester. I think it's a great thing to do as a director because you, with the writer you can't really you can't really complain if you're not about a film that you're in. You know, you can't really say they mucked up the film because you're part of it, basically. And, and they can say, well, we mucked up when we, cast, when we cast you, yeah. So, um, you know, they've given me a load of money and they've said, you're an executive producer and all that stuff, mm-hmm. which is kind of, as you know, that can mean anything or nothing. So I don't really know whether it means, like, um, get across here and do some work or keep the fuck out of the way, you know what I mean? So it's, so it's you know, but I think, you know, it's like... Um, it's like anything. I mean, you you know yourself. You don't want people on the on a film set when they've got no role being yeah. there. It's just very distracting for everybody. So I tend to keep out the way uh, unless I'm kind of called upon. But you know, I mean, Danny is very very collaborative and is a, is a director. But he, you know, he knows what he wants as well. So you've kind of really got to let, let him get on with it, basically. I mean, he doesn't kind of... When I'm sitting writing my novels, he's not standing over my shoulder going, change this, change that. You know? So I've got to kind of um, give him the same, <laughs> the same respect. Yeah. 
I love it that you've essentially, like me, spent the last 30 years of your life on the run from your home country, and yet you're headed back to go and get back into train spotting saddle. I think that's fantastic and a perfect way to end this chat. Thank you very much. You've been brilliant. Thank you, Richard. Hope to see you again soon, mate. Cheers. Thank you. Follow us on Twitter at Penguin UK Books and head over to iTunes to subscribe to the Penguin Podcast, yours forever. And feel free to leave us a review or rating. We'd love to hear what you think. Meet Stephen Stelfox, London, 1997. a man Stelfox is slashing and burning his way through the music industry, fuelled by greed and inhuman quantities of cocaine, searching for the next hit record amid a relentless orgy of self-gratification. But as the hits dry up and the industry begins to change, Stelfox must take the notion of cutthroat business practices to murderous new levels in a desperate attempt to salvage his career. I look around as my fellow A&R men, all smudged with champagne, spangled with vodka tonics, begin braying at each other. This is the sharp end of the record industry. The front line. We're the SAS, fucking Delta Force. Our jobs involve making fast decisions with hundreds of thousands, often millions of pounds at stake. These decisions are often predicated on no more than a hunch or a rumour and are often made under the influence of drugs, alcohol, peer group pressure and fear. The fear is constant because, and you must understand this, no one really has a clue what they're doing. Kill Your Friends by John Niven is available now on iTunes and Audible.